because what chasing life means to me is we don't we shouldn't measure life by the number of years. My wife died before her 41st birthday. Did she live a short life? No, I think she lived an accelerated life. Yeah. She lived a full, joyful life. What if we measure life on joy? And the thing is, these are not lessons that are in the book, but the example of our life communicates this. You know, we've been told, and it's the only way people can market things, that we need things to be happy. Happiness is fleeting. It's actually something we never can really hold on to. Joy is actually the stuff that we hold on to. You know, joy is you walking on the beach and feeling the sand between your toes. It's that feeling. It's not having anything. And that's what chasing life is all about. Hey there, this is Robert Party, the author of Chasing Life, and you are listening to the Traveling Optimist podcast with Steve Odie. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. How have you been? What have you been up to? It's been a crazy few weeks actually, so hence my lack of episode releases, but I'm back and I'm fully charged. Thanks so much for downloading and listening. And don't forget to subscribe and recommend the show to your friends, loved ones and colleagues. Uh, So sit back, grab a drink, put a do not disturb sign up and have a listen to another brilliant conversation on the Travelling Optimist podcast. Today's guest is acclaimed coach, speaker, author and all-round awesome guy, Rob Pardy. So it's 1997, Rob and his wife Desiree were achieving their dreams and goals and looking forward to a life of more travel and wonderful experiences. Then bang, they were delivered the news we all dread. It was an incredible opportunity to speak with Rob. He spoke very candidly and openly about his and Desiree's life together. And we talk about the 11 years that she so bravely fought her battle with breast cancer and what that was like for her actually living it and what it was like for Rob as a full-time carer. But this conversation is not just about sadness and despair. It's a conversation about love and joy, happiness and determination. It's about life. And so... This is me and author of the book Chasing Life, Rob Pardee, talking how to break out of complacency, valuing the ordinary moments in your life so that you're able to live an extraordinary life. And it's about not waiting for a diagnosis to start living. But ultimately, this is a heartbreaking but heartwarming story of a man who now doesn't measure his life in the number of years, but rather measures his life in the currency of joy. Okay, let's go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Travelling Optimist podcast. And today's guest is Robert Pardy. Rob, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Steve? Absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Now, you're the author of uh, a brand new book called Chasing Life, and you're a, uh, an established and and uh, and, and very well uh, sought after coach as well. Um, now, you're currently in Italy. So tell me why you're in Italy. That's it's it's a great story. Actually, um, the whole backstory is I'm a, I'm a um, widower. And so when my wife passed away, I took a look at my life and I decided to be daring. And actually, what I said to myself is, what if I can pull it off? And I just picked myself up and moved to Italy. It was a childhood dream to live in Italy. I have Italian blood from all sides of the family. So I knew it's much easier to get citizenship living here than going through a consulate. Mm. And yeah, I just showed up, two suitcases, didn't speak the language, didn't have a job, didn't know where I was going to live, and lived a very the under the Tuscan sun moment where I came to a small Italian village. Basically, there's 900 people where my great-grandfather came from, and I needed some documents, fell in love with the town. And then just sort of jokingly said to the people, hey, you know what? Um, I'd really like to buy a house, but something small, you know, because I'm all by myself. And nothing. There was not one house that I liked. And then they said, let's show you this one house. And I walk in. There's birds everywhere. The smell of bird droppings and cats. And it was just horrible. And I'm like, really? And they're like, well, go upstairs. Take a look at the view. Don't step on the balcony because it's crumbling. 
And I'm like, uh, I'm like, uh, like, why are we in this house? I step on the balcony, I turn around and I say, who do I make an offer to? The view was, it is stunning. And um, that's how I wound up here. So are you in the rolling countryside of Tuscany or is it? I Well, I'm actually in Abruzzo, uh, which is two hours east of Rome. And I am in the mountains. I'm in one of the highest mountain ranges. It's called the uh, Maiella. Yeah. And um, I'm in the National Park of Abruzzo, actually. I live in it. (laughs) Well, that's really interesting because I was involved with a company that was um, promoting wine tours in Abruzzo. And um, incredible region of Italy. I mean, and it's it's on and it's really um, not very it's not as it's not as popular as as some of the other regions. And um you know people don't realize what a little gem that whole area is and you've got the grand sasso mountains and that flow down into the to pescara and the and those areas just brilliant i see the grand sasso the Maiella is actually like in front of my balcony and i'm an hour from pescara oh that's awesome so that's the, the the tan i have at the moment is a little bit from the adriatic coast so <laughs> uh, but no abruzzo food it's authentic. It's not touristy as, at all. No. So, yeah, it is hard because you don't find a great big hotel. It's very hard to find people that speak English, yeah. but you'll have a real authentic experience. Oh, sure. absolutely. Yeah. And the wine is great. The wine is amazing. <laughs> you know, everyone, when they hear Molto Pucciano, yeah. they, they think of the other Molto Pucciano, but there's Molto Pucciano di, di Abruzzo. And there's something called Cherisuolo, which is the rosé that you can only find here. The mm. whites are Trebbiano and um, Pecorino. Yeah. Just amazing. Yeah. Oh, man, I love Pecorino. That's beautiful wine. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I could talk forever about that. Fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, Abruzzo, absolutely love it. I adore it. Um, let's Let's just skip back a little bit. Just sure. to give some context um, to the listeners about your story, I, uh, I'd really love for you to sort of Tell us a little bit about your childhood, your story, your family background, sort of influences in your life and the influencers of your life uh, sort of early on. Because I know that that's really an interesting part of your life and it's something that you've used sure. later on as well. Actually, if it, if it wasn't for the way I grew, grew up as a, as a kid, I don't think I could have achieved anything I've achieved in my life. And so the, sto- the story starts... Um, with a really dysfunctional relationship with an alcoholic dad who didn't want children. So um, I was the firstborn, and um, I guess it interrupted his lifestyle, let's say. I don't know. I don't know what the the real reasons are. Um, But as I got older, the physical abuse there was physical and mental abuse. So, I mean, it, it was both, you know, everything from being beat to um, my bicycle being stolen when I was a kid and me being told it was because I'm a horrible person and people don't like me. So that was the dynamic I grew up in, which taught me a lot about uncertainty, which taught me a lot about change. It, it taught me how people pleasing doesn't work. I mean, a whole bunch of things, but oddly enough, my dad's mom, my paternal grandmother, was the love of my life when I was a kid. And she just, not that she could save me, but she spoke to me. It, it's, it's very odd because I really, I remember being a little adult from the time I can remember. And I think probably what I had to deal with. Um, trying to keep the peace in the house as well, or my mom, you know, after I got beat by my dad telling me to go apologize to my father to make everything okay, um, which, you know, didn't make any sense, but you, you learn what you need to do. But my, my grandmother, her name was Mary, but I called her Grandma Fella because she used to call me her Fella. So um, that was her nickname. And she would say things like, look at, look at your father, look at how weak he is. You know, he's a slave to these things. Don't ever be a slave to anything. Um, She told me not to be afraid of anything. She told me to be a gypsy and just do whatever I want in life and go and see and do and meet people. Um, Here was a woman that 
She only finished the fourth grade. She was a seamstress. She barely spoke good English. And her husband died before I was even born. And she would get on a bus and we'd be like, Graham, where, where have you been? Oh, I went to Philadelphia. Why? I wanted to go see who lives in Philadelphia. <laughs> you know? um, so as she got older, she was known as Crazy Mary instead of Grandma Fella, but um, <laughs> in, a love, in a loving way. So she was the biggest influence mm. for me. The other influence, um, my, my childhood friend, his name is David. Uh, I've known him for 50 years now. And actually, when I go to the States, I stay with him. But his house was where I would find refuge. So I started to learn early on if my father was playing certain music, the mood he was in. Um, if I saw certain lights on, on in the house, I knew not to go into the house. Mm. So I would sleep at their house. And um, his dad worked for, for the government and really taught me a lot about being a man, about responsibility, about doing your best, uh, staying strong, resilience, mm. all these skills. Plus, my friend Dave, he had two brothers and a sister. It was a big house. They had the grandmother and grandfather from Italy that lived downstairs. You know, it was just, it really was a paradise. And we learned how to joke about things. Like, I would run over to their house and he's like, what happened? I'm like, my dad was chasing me, but he fell and he looked like a beach whale. And we would joke about it. And But at 13, I finally stood up for myself. Uh, physically, I became stronger. And it just got to a point where being stronger, the beatings got worse. And I defended myself. It was in that moment that when I was actually able to push my father down. Now, he, of course, he was a bigger guy than me, but being drunk, you know, he stumbled. So, mm. and he fell and I got on top of him. And um, be perfectly honest, I, I did take a kitchen knife. And I said, if you ever touch me again, I'll kill you. And it was the only thing I knew to do as a kid. With such conviction in my voice, he never touched me again. Um, and... It was then that I started learning about long-term goals. Uh, I say that's where I learned about grit because I couldn't leave the house. Mm. You know, that, unfortunately, that's where I, I fantasized about everything from killing myself to suing my parents to everything in between. Mm. Um, but I started to put things in place to get me as far away as possible, and it all had to do with money. So I started at 13 years old, working every job I could. And all of that gave me these life skills to deal with the hardest thing I had to deal with. Um, and that was, you know, in my 30s when my, my, my wife became sick. So mm. That's really what's interesting um, personally is, A, your paternal grandmother was the biggest influence and and mine was right. actually she was a really fantastic influence for me during some um formative years um where things weren't going quite right and i was i was able to compartmentalize the bullying side of stuff that was happening in my life and sort of channel that out of out of range if you like in my brain a little bit and really focus on finding people that weren't that were that, that that liked me for who I was if you know what I mean and and that, sure. that, that that I could um I could you know just have fun with you know and it sounds a little bit like you you had that as well I I definitely had that through through my friend Dave and, and his family um interestingly I really became motivated by anger mm. um and so I didn't necessarily have a lot of friends um, because I found the world just to be wrong, right? Like I had to, uh, everything was wrong and I, I had to, you know, muster through and, but the refuge was, was with my friend Dave and his family. And that's where the laughter was and um, the stupidity and, and the big meals. And even, you know, there were times that, and his dad was a big guy, six foot four, maybe, or something. Um, and, you know, that age, of course, 
kids got hit. You know, they did get spankings and stuff like that. But I remember one time, like, I don't know, his dad got really mad and he was, he was coming into the, the den and we, we, we were on the second floor of their house and they were jumping out of the window. And, and so I'm like, you know, I'm thinking of jumping out the window, but his dad came in and I'm like, oh no, I'm stuck, you know, and, but he, he started laughing. His dad started laughing. He's like, did they jump out the window? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, why didn't you? Like, I didn't get there in time. He's like, do it now. (laughs) I jumped out the window. So, um, you know, it was, it was things like that. Yeah. Anger, anger fueled me for, for a very long time. Um, it's not sustainable. It's not healthy. It is a motivating force for sure. Um, you know, anger provides a lot of contrast about a lot of things, but when you start to look at it, at least for me, when I started to look at it for what it was, mm. it started to lose its ability to motivate me. Okay, so as a teenager, you were angry. Well, that Most yeah. teenagers are, you know, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a father of, a, you know, a couple of teenagers. Well, one's a little bit older now, but so recognizing that you're, you're getting cross with things and you, you know, it's, it's a negative. How did, how did you sort of recognize that? And what did you do to kind of rectify that, that situation? Well, I didn't recognize it as much as a kid. You know, when I first found my strength, let's say I did get into a lot of fights, you know, then it was like, yeah, I'm just going to fight with everybody. You know, hey, just took down my dad. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, not the wisest choice at all, by the way. But (laughs) but the anger was not a projected anger. The anger was a looking at the world as something I had to conquer. Mm. And so it was all internal and it was, I'd stay up, you know, studying all night long to make sure I got the grades to get into university. It was working three or four jobs or doing anything anyone asked me to do. Mm. Um, and it wasn't necessarily this anger of acting out yeah. um, at all. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was really internal. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that, that makes sense. So when you went to college and everything, what you, you you studied economics, I think, didn't you? I I studied economics. I actually I enrolled as pre med because it was deemed from my Sicilian grandfather um, that I was going to be a doctor from the moment I was born. Every single gift I ever received, encyclopedias about medicine, um, all that, and I was really interested in it. I really, really was. But I also went to university in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan, Gordon Gekko, Wall Street. And I took an economics class just to see what it was about. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's what I need to do. Um, Also, because I was very good. One of the skills I learned in my childhood was understanding trends which way is my dad going to be? Which way is this going to be? And I started being able to read things and I found economics was a lot like that. So I changed immediately after one semester and decided to pursue the money. Yeah. 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 That's an interesting so, phrase. Yeah. <laughs> very 80s. It's very 80s, yeah. isn't it? It's very 80s. It's yeah. very 80s. Yeah. You know, hey, um, dynasty, you know, <laughs> Alexis Carrington and all of that. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> Was I was more of a time. Dallas person. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the 80s, that, I mean, actually, I was thinking about this in the car the other day, right? I, I, I was, you know, in my teenage years, my, throughout the 80s, and it was the best decade ever. If I was, was going to have my, you know, mid-teens to early 20s in the 70s, I think I want my money back um, because I think, I'd, I, I think I'd feel like I'd missed out on stuff. Sorry to everybody who's listening who's in that in that bracket, but the eighties was <laughs> just an insanely great, great time. It was it was an amazing time. Actually, to tell you the truth, um, the most recent Wonder Woman movie, Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four, I loved just because they had like all the eighties stuff in it. It was just in, yeah. incredible. Um, yeah. But funny because you, you talk about like Dallas and, and Dynasty. I, I mentioned Alexis more because she was angry. Mm. she had that internal <laughs> that internal anger that like yeah. drove her right yeah yeah so um but you know it, so in university yeah i i focused on 
on economics, I did. I, I was thinking about, you know, the almighty dollar. Um, that was the dream. It was possible. Yeah. People were making tons of money. And to me, it was going to be the ultimate liberation. Right. You know, to have complete independence from, at that point, I already did have independence from from my dad. And I understood him. I forgave him, but I didn't want to build a relationship with him. No, no, no desire to know him. And um, I met my wife and that sort of started to change the whole dynamic of the way I looked at life. Uh, which girls was, tend to do that don't they yeah, yeah which, <laughs> which which was great and she and she was just she was so anti anything i knew because i grew up in a very italian american family yeah where the men stayed at the table and the women got up and took the plates into the kitchen and washed the plates and then brought the coffee and yes yeah, she wasn't that at all and I was like, who, who are you? Wait a minute. Are, are you like questioning my, th- because we, we had a conversation once about Ronald Reagan. I'm like, are you seriously talking badly about Ronald Reagan at this moment? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you shouldn't be doing that. So it's, it's so funny, but yeah. You, so you, you, you met Desiree in college. Yeah. And she you, was 17. Right. I was 19. Okay. Oh, that's so cool. And then, so when did you get married? We got married right after she, uh, well, a couple months after she, she graduated. So it was in 1989. Yeah. So we got married four years after we met. Okay. Oh, uh, wow. How romantic. Yeah, it was, it, we were, we were that college couple that like was always holding hands, would go to each other's classes, you know, yeah. kissing, tickling and giggling and, you know, making everybody <laughs> nauseous. But yeah, that, that was us. What were your dreams and sort of goals then as you, when you got married, what did you want to, what did you want to do? What did you want to be? How did you want your life to pan out? I was very much still into the the money idea. Like I wanted to live in a high rise apartment in New York city, maybe a loft, mm. you know, have the money, do a lot of traveling. And we never really did speak about children. Neither of us were really in that frame of mind when we were younger because we were both very focused on careers she was very a very ambitious woman herself uh but that was sort of the expectation it was the expectation of going out to the hamptons in the summer and all these things i sort of fantasized about which would have made me so much different than the way i grew up Mm. Uh, but as we grew up together because Really, if you think about it, 17 and 19, you're, you're kids. And she was 21. I was 23 when we got married. We grew up together. Yeah. Um, and we challenged each other to grow. We had this belief, more my wife's idea conceptually, that a relationship is like DNA. And of course, she was the doctor, so DNA worked for her. Where you do start to grow apart, and it's at that moment you have to pull yourself back towards center. Mm. And it was something that we were very conscious about, maybe because of the relationship I saw with my parents, maybe because I couldn't necessarily protect my mom as a kid. I was much more concerned about protecting her, giving her a great life. Um, As well, she was very dedicated to anything she pursued. So that was the aspiration at the beginning. Mm. And it changed over time to be more about what we could experience, not necessarily have. And so, yes, travel was still very important to us, but we lived in a studio apartment, a six-flight walk-up in New York City, where we had a Murphy bed, um, and we lived there for 13 years. We lived there for 13 years because she was doing an MD PhD program. We thought it best to save money, but the money we did have was to experience instead of to have. I I never owned a car. Um, We never owned a house. It was just the possessions weren't important to us. It was also during that period of time where anger started to dissipate. Like I wasn't being fueled anymore by anger and it led me to question a lot of what I was doing in my life. Mm. Um, 
and the choices I was making. Yeah. So. I suppose you can, you say anger, but the way I'm sort of interpreting it is, it is really just very highly driven. Yeah, very, very highly driven, but very highly driven to get away from and not be like somebody. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very, very much so. Um, you know, I didn't want him at the wedding, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and he and he and my mom were, were married until he passed away. But I would prefer just to see her alone. Yeah. Um, I didn't want that aspect of it. So mm. that's why I, I call it anger. Right. I'm really not sure what, what the right word is because I didn't want anything bad to happen to him. No. I just didn't want him to be part of my life. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. And so where you, you so you came out of college and and I know that you 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 went into bank banking is that right yeah yeah so and you ended up in Abu Dhabi is that right yeah I did I did um it's it's very funny I started questioning my career and Desiree and I made a pact actually she said look when I graduate why don't you go back to school and figure out what you want to do um I was really good at what I did. Uh, I, I have to say it's sort of a, a natural skill I have for investments for whatever reason. And just when I was thinking about or fantasizing about changing careers, a job at the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, which is one of the largest uh, sovereign wealth funds, just appeared out of nowhere, literally. Um, and the package, of course, was pretty incredible. Um, I was just turned 31. And, you know, living in a five-star hotel, making a lot of money, which is mostly tax-free. As Americans, we always have to pay taxes. So <laughs> unfortunately, you know, I know like if anybody else goes and works in Abu Dhabi, it's 100% tax-free. That's not true for an American, but it was a very low tax rate regardless. Yeah. And 65 days a year vacation. So Desiree and I said, you know what? Look, it's an experience and you're doing your PhD. And you really need to concentrate. So we decided every six weeks to meet in a different country. <laughs> That's and awesome. That, and the first year of my contract was every six weeks, we met in a different country for a week. And it was, every, you know, Paris, London, um, Luxembourg. I mean, who goes to Luxembourg? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it was on the map. So we decided to go. Uh, and when she finished her PhD, she said to me, she said, Robert, I'd like to take a sabbatical and come and live the last year of your contract in Abu Dhabi. Mm. And I said, yeah, of course, um, that would be amazing. To get a residency visa for the UAE, you have to go through a medical screening. And in the medical screening, they found that she had uh, a lump in her breast, which we had known about, actually. She had cystic breasts. They ran in her family. Um, you know. She was in, she had just turned 31. So it, it wasn't something that a doctor in the late 90s would have really considered anything mm. because just, you know, they didn't do mammograms for women at that age. They didn't do biopsies or anything. But the doctor in the UAE said, let me just do a needle aspiration. And when he did the needle aspiration, I didn't know at the time what it meant, but there was no fluid. And I saw the look on my wife's face and she looked at the doctor and immediately I knew there was a communication going on. I didn't understand. And he said, um, you know what, let me, let me have you um, set you up to have this removed. And she then explained to me what it meant if there was no fluid, but it was going to be very unlikely. Even the doctor said it was very unlikely. Well, when they did remove it, um, she had a lumpectomy and the next day, not the next day, sorry, um, they tested it right then and there and they found cancer cells. Mm. And she woke up and from the equipment she was attached to, she realized that she had cancer. Um, and that's sort of where the like life really takes a shift in a completely different direction. And she asked me, she said, Robert, listen, I know enough to be dangerous to myself. I don't want to know anything. 
can you manage my care? And that's what started me off as being both a caregiver and sort of a surrogate because I had to live the disease to sort of make the right decisions for her. Mm. She gave me a roadmap of what she wanted to do, Mm. what aggressive meant to her, what quality of life meant to her. But I had to sort of feel a lot of it to make decisions I thought were appropriate for her. Yeah. Yeah. That's a just immensely powerful, actually, what you just said. And it, I guess it's a lot of people experience it, but, you know, directly being there with your wife, what sort of emotions were going through your mind then in terms of life was just sort of getting going, really, wasn't it? You were just. Well, we were at, let's say, the best that we could have been, right? Mm. Like there, there was money, there was freedom. She was getting close to, you know, finishing her dream of an MD, PhD mm. and becoming a doctor. But the emotion, honestly, fear immediately because um, they told me she had 24, maximum 30 months. Right. And. I just had to suck that up and put that somewhere where I didn't think about it, but there was more the rally cry Mm. um, really of let's do whatever we can to get over this. I'm here to support, support you. And it's very interesting because there were two experiences for me. There was when she was diagnosed and it was, you know, getting into the arena. Yeah. Let's bring out all the stuff and, you know, we're going to get a big tank and just plow through this. When it recurred and I realized I couldn't save her, that's when I really had, um, you know, the big, bad, dark conversation with myself in the dark, mm. deep well of despair. And I realized that the best thing I could do, I became very introspective as a child and I learned a lot about resilience. So I am someone that if something bad happens, you know what, I'm going to throw myself down as hard as possible into that well. And I'm going to eat all that crap that's on the bottom of the floor to bounce back up as fast as I can. It's just something that I learned. Um, And I can explain where I believe, because I believe we're all resilient. We just have to learn how to access it. It's, it's not, it's not a skill that is available to some we all are and i i pulled myself back and we decided to design a life around the disease um and that's that's really what our our journey became now when i talk about it it's it sounds like we had this amazing life and we did but that doesn't mean that she didn't throw up on me in the bed in the middle of the night from the chemotherapy or we didn't have arguments where you know she wanted to to kill me basically because she w- didn't want to be married to a parent she wanted a husband or that there weren't sexual problems because of what she was going through and um identity issues of her being a woman or um even me being a man and and crying you know by myself and different places because you know it was just overwhelming at times especially i was the one that knew everything right yeah so they would tell me well um you know she has a couple of spots in her bones now oh there's a spot in her lung oh you know there's um there's disease in her intestines the smile had to be there for her yeah you know we're keeping it controlled it's only in the liver we just we're going to change chemos again don't worry about it so the thing is what I realized very early on, you know, because becoming a caregiver is the the most difficult thing in the world to do because on a dime, your identity changes. You're now in a position you're not equipped for. You don't speak the language. Everything changes moment to moment. You have no clarity. You don't feel like you have hope. And I realized I have two perspectives here. To look at this as an obligation that something happened to me or to look at it as an opportunity and use this as an opportunity to try to make ourselves and our life as great as everything can be Mm. for the time we have together, Um, which she 
expected of me, actually, because she was very much like that herself. Just to give you an idea, she didn't know her GPA from university, which was a 4.0, but she didn't want to know. She didn't know the score, um, her scores on the MCATs because she only wanted to know she was ever doing her best. She didn't believe in judgment. Right. So what, sorry, could you explain to me what 4.0 means? Oh, sure. Um, a four, um, I guess that would be, wow, I don't know what it would be in, in the UK. It's like an A. It's 100. It's, you know, okay, flaw, yeah. flawless. Like yes. You got yeah, 100 and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Now, for the for any any listeners out there, there is also, there's two two things that I just want to sort of promote and then we're going to get talk a little sure. bit about the book as well. But you you wrote an article for the New York Times, didn't you? And I did. I I actually didn't write it. Um, okay. It, it was it was an interview that was being done while my wife was alive, but she passed away in the middle. Right. Okay. And they they asked me to take it in a different direction. Interestingly, they said she said a lot of interesting things, and I said um, yes, I know she told me, and they were off the record, and they basically told me, well, when someone passes away, nothing is off the record. Yeah. So I said, please write whatever article you think will have impact because that's what she wanted. Yes. But it documents what, what happened. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And it is very, very impactful. I found it extremely powerful, very emotional, uh, actually. And I know I wrote to you about it and, um, yeah. And I was so grateful for you sharing it. And so what I thought I might do, if it's okay with you, is actually put a link to that article in the show notes for everybody to have sure. a look at. Sure, and, then, and then obviously that leads quite nicely. Segways, I think, is a, a radio term, I think. Um, so that segues quite nicely into the book. Your your book was called Chasing Life, isn't it? And I th so can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, it's It's really interesting because... What I wanted people to understand, um, and I have a co-author in the book because after my wife passed away, she was fascinated by, by us. We actually met her while she was going through her own treatment. And she said, you know, you really should write a book about how the two of you handled this. Mm -hmm. And I said, maybe one day. And she said, well, you know what? Don't lose the stories why don't you tell me the stories and then she showed up one day and she said this is a skeleton for a book yeah what i chose to do in the book is the book is a documentation of and while it it does deal with cancer and it does deal with caregiving it's a documentation of breaking out of complacency it's about life we, I'll be so bold to say, none of us are meant to survive life. And I don't know why we wait for a diagnosis from a doctor to question how we're living our lives. Mm. And we also have this feeling or belief that life is difficult and we have to wait till Friday, TGI Friday. You know, maybe it should be, thank God it's today instead of TGI Friday. So putting the book together, what I wanted to communicate is that there is a way to rise above complacency. There is a way to wake up and live your life on pur uh, purpose, to make decisions consciously. And it all comes from when we value the ordinary moments, because it's only when we value the ordinary moments that we live an extraordinary life. It's not the five-star hotel I was in with my wife. It's her giggle playing with the dog. That is something that stays with me. That mm. really colored my life. Mm. That was the color in my life. The other thing was just a, you know, it's a thing. We sort of lived that when we were young, partly because we didn't even have money when we were young, right? So, you know, it was a bottle of wine and it was a pizza and go sit in Central Park. But we didn't look for stuff. We looked for the experiences. And what we learned as time went on is there are so many experiences that didn't have to do with caregiving, that didn't have to do with cancer. Um, this is a story I've never really told anyone, but my wife loved the beach. 
And it's not in the book, actually. Uh, it just came to me. But she loved the beach. By the towards the end of her life, it was a few. It was actually two months before she passed away. You know, there was no travel for us anymore. Mm. She really could barely could leave the house, but she was feeling a little good. And I said to her, I said, why don't we hire a driver, take a car to Coney Island, go get a hot dog and sit on the beach. We got that hot dog. She took off her shoes. She walked to the shore. She put her feet in the water. The smile on her face was radiant. She turned around to me, tear in her eye and said, I need to go home. That one moment was life. That was chasing life. Because what chasing life means to me is we, don't, we shouldn't measure life by the number of years. My wife died before her 41st birthday. Did she live a short life? No, I think she lived in an accelerated life. Yeah. She lived a full, joyful life. What if we measure life on joy? And the thing is, these are not lessons that are in the book, but the example of our life communicates this. You know, we've been told, and it's the only way people can market things, that we need things to be happy. Happiness is fleeting. It's actually something we never can really hold on to. Joy is actually the stuff that we hold on to. You know, joy is you walking on the beach and feeling the sand between your toes. It's that feeling. It's not having anything. And that's what chasing life is all about. It's mm. documenting what I say is it's her evolution because, you know, that woman, she's probably speaking to Abraham Maslow now saying, you know what? Yeah, self-actualization. I know a thing or two about that, <laughs> um, you know, because she became the founding director of palliative care at New York Hospital with metastatic breast cancer. Yeah. Um, like I just, she was so purpose driven. We, we traveled to India. She worked as a volunteer in a hospital. I just she wanted to give and she yeah. wanted to give so much of herself and and it helped me understand what purpose really is you know i say this all the time we've been given misinformation that we all need to be greta saving the environment no we don't purpose is when your passion is in alignment with your values and you want to give away the results you don't hold on to them for your own glory. Mm. That's it. Could be cooking a wonderful meal for your family. That's that's purpose. Yeah, that's right. So it documents her evolution and my awakening in terms of living around adversity and making the best of the life we had while we had it. Yes, there's quite. A, there's a phrase in the, in uh, from the book that I really love, and it's about living in the present. And I wanted to really get your thoughts on that, if you don't mind. I I, I feel sure. like I'm 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 almost getting a, a this is free coaching lesson. It's probably worth <laughs> thousands of dollars, right? But um, this isn't. I mean, it's not for me. But but living right, in the living in the present is is really is is critical, actually, isn't it, to what you've just said? And I wondered what you know. When did you realize that that was the case? It it's it's so critical. And when when did I realize it? I realized it when I saw my wife being concerned for me because I didn't know how to deal with the fact that she had metastatic breast cancer mm. and I couldn't save her. Mm. It, it came from my awareness came from surrendering. And, the, and these are all words we don't really like vulnerability. <sighs> you know, it sounds like the worst thing in the world. Mm. It's the bravest thing to be vulnerable. It's the bravest thing to surrender. Because you're saying, this is so damn important to me that I'm going to reach out for help. I don't know how to do it all. And I want someone to help me understand how to do it because I want this to work. That's, that's real strength. You know? So in that moment, when I had to surrender, I realized that all my fear, 100%, was future focused. None of it was happening at that moment. Mm. And I only had to ask myself, what's happening right now? And 99% of the time she was okay. Mm. 
yeah, okay, the cancer is now in her bones. Well, she's still going out running. running. So you know what? Um, I'm not going to worry about it right now. Yeah. There's nothing I can do about it. But what I can do is enjoy the moments we have. And that thing about the moment is it's really when we have to understand what time really is. Time is a measurement. It's non-renewable. And you can waste it. Yeah. You know, it's a type of currency. So what do you want to do with it? The investment is in the moment and the return is joy. And that's yeah. where my economics comes from. <laughs> you know, we, we, could t- we could talk all about opportunity cost because in the end, when you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And if you don't, you only understand that trade-off when you're thinking about the moment, when you're in the present moment, mm. because what is, what is this really going to do for you? Yes. And when, when Desiree sadly passed away, I know that you went through some challenges and I, I wondered, how did you get yourself out of that, that, that sort of period of your life? What, what were you, what was it? Did you have to, was it a process that you, you knew you had to go through? Was it, did you know that there was, there was some light at the end of the tunnel or did you, did you not, you couldn't think that far ahead? I didn't think there was any light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it, it was the, the process was, it was very odd because I didn't grieve her passing. I mean, of course, physically I miss her and, and this is so many things, but um, I knew you, I learned you don't extend death. It's, 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 it's a cruel thing to do. Um, and so that part of it was okay, but I lived her disease to a certain extent. I lived her life to a certain extent that that was my purpose. Mm. And what happened was I became purposeless and without purpose, I wasn't feeling joy. And so I didn't understand at that moment how to rebuild it. And the childhood fears came up because you know what? An 11 year battle with breast cancer is very costly. I had over a hundred thousand dollars in debt. I couldn't keep the apartment in New York. So I called up my business partner in Dubai. I had taken a break from work the last two years and um, went back out to Dubai, started making money. And I was just on this treadmill. Nothing was making sense. And one day Literally, I, I, I was I was drinking champagne in this wonderful, you know, apartment in Dubai, looking over some gorgeous building, <laughs> and I thought to myself, "Wait a minute, this isn't my life." But I never grieved my death. It was my death I had to grieve. Mm. I had to grieve the expectations of being the guy in New York City with the, the blonde wife and the yuppie lifestyle and, and all of that. And the moment I looked at my, that I was carrying expectations that didn't make any sense anymore, it opened space. And I thought to myself, what is it I want to be? And what immediately came to mind for me is I want to be an example to my niece and nephew that no matter what, you life doesn't have to beat you down. And that's what took me on the journey of life coach showing up in Italy without a job, teaching English for $8 an hour um, while I was going through coaching school because I wanted to be that. And that's when I defined my, my personal life. I think we should all have a personal hashtag in a way uh, that defines our philosophy. Yeah, And so mine is possibility in action. And that's when I defined it. I said, I just want to be possibility in action. I want to try, I want to be that gypsy grandma fella told me to be. Yeah. And, and that was it. That's what helped me get over, get through the transition. You know, I'm not, I'm very spiritual. I'm not a religious person, but there's um, the Psalm that says, as I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, the key word is walk through. You don't sit down and start a campfire and start roasting marshmallows in that valley. You need to walk through. 
And I realized it was my identity that was impacted. And once I, once I saw that, and it would have been great if someone could, tell me, could have told me that, which is why I talk about it. Once you see your identity has impacted, it's up to you to reconstruct that identity. And I'm lucky enough to have lived in Italy for many years now where I've seen some beautiful ancient mosaics um, that were, you know, they're 2,000 years old. The individual pieces were cut by hand. They're imperfect. But together, it's stunning because it's the imperfections that create depth in, and beauty yeah. in that mosaic. Yeah. So what we go through, these imperfections, you know, they're, they're what makes us us. They're what makes us individual. We want to be individual. We mm. really do. But we have a tribal mentality and we live in a society that needs to keep us in a certain way so they could sell us all the same things. Mm. But the idea of perfect is impossible. It's the imperfections. And I say all the time, I'm beautifully scarred from having loved and lo lo loved, lost and cared for my wife. It, I love that. Embracing your imperfections is a really nice phrase, actually. And it, it kind of, it means a lot, doesn't it? There's a yeah. hell of a lot of meaning to that. So that's why you got into coaching. I love that. You know, and 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 actually, I think, well, I, I you know, all coaches are, are, are very different, but I, I I do sense that your whole life experience is something that, uh, and and Desiree's legacy and everything is 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 come, comes through you. Actually, I would imagine as a coach, is that right? Or do those experiences that you've had? One one hundred percent. The the beautiful thing about coaching is that it is actually harnessing your experiences to, to enter in empathy with the person. Mm. A coach is there, not there to diagnose or go through you know, the past or reconstruct. A coach is there to spark your inherent strengths. Yeah. We, we, we all have strengths. Yeah. We all have things of value to add, to build upon. Um, that's all part of that uniqueness, right? Mm. So all of what I talk about, I talk about from the perspective of the things I've learned. And that allows me to see that stuff in other people and maybe what's blocking them, the, li the limiting beliefs. I mean, when I, you know, when I decided to become a coach, I was thinking, you know, look at my age. Um, it's going to take me forever to create a name for myself, uh, all, the, all these types of things. But our experiences only have value if we share them, just like anything else. If you keep something yeah. valuable in your house, it has no value. Yeah. So the, the journey into coaching was to understand myself and was to understand how to utilize all of this to create that spark. Because really, you shouldn't work with a coach anyway for more than six months, in my opinion, because it's really to help you get your wings, let's say. Yeah, yeah. then you go back and I, I have a coach and I, I still speak to him once every three months or something like that just to, you know, hash out some things um, because it's not from one day to the next, you know, everything just goes away. No. Um, limiting beliefs come up and, and you learn more and more about yourself. Yes. but. It allows you to approach life differently. Uh, mm. I'll show you some. When my wife was diagnosed, I bought myself a kaleidoscope. And I actually use this when I talk about coaching. Because a kaleidoscope is all about perspective. And it's the turning of the dial that creates something new. Fear on, in our life is what stops us from turning the dial. Because we're so attached to that, that beautiful image that's already in there that you know, we're afraid to lose it. Yeah. And we have to learn to work, work through attachments and expectations and all those other things. Um, and I carry that with me everywhere I go. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great, it's a, it's a great um, analogy to, uh, I think people do get caught up and, and, and fearful of stuff, you know, that, that holds people, that holds you back, you know? And yeah. I think it's the, it's the, it's that fear of failure that I think holds people that I've met a lot of people that it's just, they just, they're not bothered. They don't, they don't try something because I don't know, 
their their dad tried in business and it, it all fell it all went wrong right? right and so i don't want to go through what my dad went through you know that kind of thing or and i i really i really feel i feel i feel sorry that they they've they've got that that belief you know and i think this is so as a coach you would be able to you'd get them asking better questions for their life i think really wouldn't you well that that's really what coaching is all about um, a, co- a coach really doesn't say much mm. coach asks a few questions it's you that responds and you yeah. start to find it inside of you but if you just think about that one thing you said the, the fear of failure which so many people fear of failure fear of rejection fear of missing out you know um fear of ridicule all, all kinds of different things but mm. fear of failure well, how are you defining success? For me, success is me stepping into the arena. You know, think about the first Rocky. And here, here you go again, right? Because that's when I grew up. You know Rocky as well. Yeah. So um, I, I say, you know, maybe he was drinking the eggs that because I actually did do that <laughs> uh, as a kid that helped me fight my dad. But um, so, But if you think about the first Rocky movie, he didn't win. And his goal wasn't to win. His goal was to go the distance. So it's how are you defining success? Mm. For me, it's getting in the arena. Mm. Because at the end of the day, when I'm on my deathbed, whether a business failed or succeeded or whatever the case is, really is not going to have any value. Yeah. But it's going to be, and this is why I love podcasters. I love what you do. Because storytelling has lost gotten lost somewhere we don't do it anymore i live in italy it's 900 people there's one piazza they sit in the evening and they tell stories yeah you know we don't do that anymore and that's what podcasts are are so great but we're all content creators we're leaving content for those people we've touched and i want to know that i left the content of trying as success, not getting necessarily to that goal. It is wonderful. Sure. I, one day I'd love to have a million dollars, you know, um, at my age, will it happen? I don't know. It's not that important, but I'll, I'll go out and I'll, I'll, I'll swing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think some people, I was guilty of this. I was, I, I, I was measuring myself in the wrong, using the wrong metrics. Okay. I was measuring myself financially and comparing myself with other people when I, and it and, and actually what i needed to do was take my focus away from that and um it wasn't until i started realize i realized that actually being a the the best husband and the best father was actually way more important than being an entrepreneur or a, a really good business owner you know and i feel that when i realized that that took a hell of a lot of weight off my shoulders and and that, you know things started to sort of then suddenly click into place and i i, I see that a lot with people do you 100 percent. um first of all comparison is the most corrosive thing that exists for anyone's life um we live more and more in a world where we're comparing ourselves mm. What's the other side of comparison? Because there actually is a healthy comparison that got lost, is admiration. Admiration is what we should be looking at. Admiration is a role model. It's not about the things. It's about how they live, how they got to, to be where they are, what they've done. I love to read you know, stories from all kinds of different people. Um, there's a Oh, what's his name? Is it Joe? I want to say Joe Simpson. And I, I'm pretty sure it is Joe Simpson, but you know, he wrote a book years ago, the late 80s, Touching the Void. And he was one of those rock mountain climbers that, you know, it was a bad storm. His partner actually had to cut the rope to survive. Mm-hmm. And he fell into the this gorge and he was basically all broken. And it took him days to walk back to the camp. And he had two voices in his head stop, lay down and die. And the other voice, keep moving. And he realized that we just have to listen to the right voice. Yeah. And when we're children, we absorb everything. All of our beliefs, we've never really questioned them. We've, they've sort of been programmed, right? 
Um, and it feels, sounds very weird when you talk about reframing and you talk about all these different tools because people think, oh, yeah, but it's sort of like I'm brainwashing myself. Well, actually, you are, yeah. right? You know, is this whose expectations are you living? Mm. Is this what's really important to you? Um, those are the questions that, you know, a coach would ask for sure. Yeah. Uh, and look at me. I was I was that 1980s kid, right, that wanted to live the Wall Street life. And I live in a little tiny town in Italy, you know, with 900 people. And, you know, my, my friends that I went to Columbia University with, they've got, you know, the $10 million home and maybe one of them has a helicopter. And, yeah, you know. Would I, you trade your life for that? Not at all. No. Not at all. I'd rather eat some leftover pasta. <laughs> you know? In terms of optimism... Okay, sure. going having you know gone through and experienced what you've experienced, and um, you know the roller coaster of of life was particularly um, enhanced uh, in for, for you and 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 Desiree. What does it? Mean? I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go all out here and say you're an optimist. Yeah. But what does it mean to you to be an optimist? And describe it to me what it feels like. Sure. First, what I will say is that optimism can be very dangerous. So when we're talking about optimism, I'm not talking about, you know, all the rainbows and butterflies and sunshine every day. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, oh, who is it? Uh, Admiral Stockdale talked about how um, the people that did worse in the concentration camps were the optimists that kept saying, we're going to be out by Christmas, we're going to be out by Easter, and they yeah. just disintegrated. Optimism is being realistic about a situation, but having the belief in yourself or the possibility that it can improve mm. with effort. That's For me, that's, that's all it's about. My, my thing is always, what's next? That, that's what I see as optimism. Something's happened. Okay, what's next? Let's look at it. Let's evaluate it. There are things we can do. Now, did I have a magic wand to get rid of the cancer? No, I didn't. Optimism not, is not about fixing something. No. Returning something back. It is about making the best of what's happening and knowing you have the possibility to do it. Mm. I love that. Absolutely. What um, I mean, this has been such an incredible conversation, Rob. I, I can't thank you enough. But I think what what just to finish on what what is your number one question that you would recommend we all ask ourselves at the beginning oh, sure. of every day? There's a million questions I can think of, and um, the one I really love has profanity, so I won't use the profanity. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but what I will say is. Ask yourself every day, what if I can pull it off? That's all. What if I can pull it off? Not, not what if I fail? What can go wrong? What if it works? What if I can do it? Just give yourself the opportunity to try. Yeah. Thank you. I, I I, that's, that's one of the, I have five, a few questions that I ask myself in the morning. That's, that's one of them. Okay. What's the second one? The, the second one, well, let me see. What would I, what would I say would be the second one? Now you've got me. Um, I'm hooked. <laughs> um, what is using too much of my life? Oh, I love that. Yeah. I, 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 we spend, one of the great things, and saying great things sounds crazy, but when you become a caregiver, you learn to let go of the unnecessary. And so I like to ask myself if I'm wasting time or energy in something that is not providing any benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. G giving you value. So, yeah. What is using too much of my life? Yeah. Great question. Because it's using. It's yes. that actually using. It's not contributing. No, I love that. That's a really great question. I've never had that. I've never heard that <laughs> question before, but I'm going to use that. Cool. <laughs> I am going to use that. Robert, I feel I've taken too much of your time already. Um, no, but... this is, I, I just hope everybody listens because <laughs> um, I think the work you do is, is, is great. And so 
um, you know, well, you, you, you brought out so much. You gave me so much space to really share. So oh, thank you. Well, bless you. Thank you. I mean, the feeling is mutual. You, you, you've given so much. And uh, I, I'm so grateful for you spending some time uh, with me uh, on the podcast. Just to let everybody know, Robert's book is is Chasing Life. It's out on Amazon and all good booksellers now, I would imagine. And um, please go ahead, go and buy it. It's an it's a, an, a, a fantastic story. And as I said before, um, I'll put a link into the New York Times article that uh, uh, describes a time in in his life and Desiree's life um, that uh, will leave you feeling. Um, with some perspective in life I think it left me feeling like that and um, but Great. Robert thank you so much my friend I, I'm so so grateful uh, um, and it's been a huge honor to speak with you and thank you so much it's been a huge honor to be on your show so thank you thanks Robert Oh, thank you so much for listening. Um, having Rob on the show was such an amazing experience for me. He's a brilliant person and I can't thank him enough for taking the time to come on the show. Hopefully I can meet up with Rob sometime and share a bottle of Montepulciano with him in Abruzzo. Uh, but please do reach out to Rob on the socials. I'll put the links in the show notes. His and Desiree's book is available at chasinglifethebook.com. That's chasinglifethebook.com. And Rob's website to learn more about himself is Robert Pardy with an I, not a Y.com. That's Robert Pardy with an I, not a Y.com. Uh, so thanks so much for listening, everybody, and stay tuned for some more incredible conversations in the coming weeks. Big love to you all, and remember, value those ordinary moments every day. <laughs>